How could we make reuse feel just as convenient as single use and disposable? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. It's episode 73, and I'm over the moon to be sharing today's conversation with you. There are so many fantastic takeaways that I was tempted to write a blog as well. I'm here today with Tom Zaki, the founder of TerraCycle and also of Loop, a global platform for reuse. Founded in 2001, TerraCycle is the world's leader in the collection and reuse of non-recyclable post-consumer waste. TerraCycle works with over 100 major brands in 20 countries across the world to collect used packaging and products that would otherwise be destined for landfill. It repurposes that waste into new eco-friendly materials and products that are available online and through major retailers. Loop, TerraCycle's groundbreaking reuse platform, was announced in 2019 and is now available across the US, UK and several other countries. Loop partners with over 200 consumer product companies. It helps brands and manufacturers to provide refillable versions of their conventional single-use products and partners with more than a dozen major retailers to embed these offerings into their online e-commerce and physical retail stores. Loop says the future is refillable and it's working to activate a circular reuse ecosystem offering thousands of products from your cup of coffee to your shampoo bottle aiming to make reuse as convenient and accessible as single use. Tom Zaki shares a whole range of insights and learnings from his 20 years experience of building a circular business. So let's hear from Tom and afterwards I'll catch up with you on what I took away from the conversation. Tom, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you today. And you're one of the pioneers starting a circular business way back in 2001. So I'd love to start by asking a bit about your background and how you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm uh, originally from Hungary, uh, uh, born in Budapest. And uh, uh, that's only really relevant because back in the early 80s, I was born in 82, was still communist uh, at the time. And uh, Chernobyl happened in 86. Uh, my parents were able to escape with me as four years old, and we landed as refugees in Germany, then Holland, uh, Belgium, and then finally Canada. And I mentioned this because I went from effectively communism to capitalism, fell in love with entrepreneurship, um, probably for more egocentric reasons, you know, like fame and fortune pursuit. I felt that was the easiest ticket for me to, uh, you, know, to you know, to those more, uh, uh, you know, personal dreams. And... Um, I had this big turning point, to be honest, you know, in uh, my first year of university, I was down in the U.S. at this point. And uh, when they were teaching business, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the ways they taught it was that the purpose of business is to maximize profit to shareholders. And, you know, I had a 
a fundamental problem with that because, you know, today when I say talk at schools and universities and I ask students, what's the point of business? They never say an answer like that. They say it's about making the world better or society better or somehow solving a problem and improving. But the, uh, uh, but the way business interacts today is it's, 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 that's nice, but the fundamental purpose is profit to shareholders. And I, um, wanted to sort of reevaluate the purpose of profit in my mind. And I sort of see it as a very important thing, but as an indicator of health, right? If you're profitable, you're going to flourish and grow. And if you're not profitable, the opposite will occur. And, uh, and so I wanted really desperately to sort of think about business models that put purpose first and then can do so at a profit so it can flourish and grow. And that started a lifelong fascination with waste uh, because garbage is a huge purposeful issue, you know, to solve, right? Uh, it, it's a big problem. Um, uh, but there's, you know, it's also devoid of innovation, uh, perhaps because it is literally smelly, nasty, gross, and we avoid it, even professionally avoid it. And uh, there are so many interesting ways to elevate or eliminate waste that can be done in a for-profit context. And so that's been uh, how TerraCycle began. And, you know, that's been 20 years. And now we're about 600 team members across 20 countries doing this, uh, this work. Wow, that, that's expanded really impressively, hasn't it? And um, when I was doing the research for the podcast and looking at the website um, for, for what Loop was doing, which is what we're going to focus on today, then the, um, the mission statement on the Loop site outlines the challenge that we all face, highlighting the proliferation of single-use products enabled by marketing campaigns that define them as a transformative modern convenience so we're all kind of, you know, being convinced that um, convenience is, is the most important thing. And from that, we've seen exponential increases in single-use products over the last few decades. And that's now led us to this to where we are now, which is a global waste crisis that threatens our oceans, our ecosystems and human health. So there's some powerful stuff there um, in that mission statement. And you're pointing out that today, less than 10% of all single-use packaging is recycled. So that leaves the remaining 90% in landfills, incinerated or discarded and then ending up ultimately in our oceans. And we've, you know, we've seen the pictures of that and we, and we know it's not just about fish swallowing plastic. It's all the microplastics and, and uh, the chemicals leaching out of those microplastics and are much worse. So I guess the inconvenient truth is that we can't continue using and disposing all of those highly convenient single use items. So, so how, how did the idea for Loop evolve from all of those issues? Yeah. So, you know, the journey of how Loop came to be, you know, started in how like, Loop is TerraCycle's third division. So it's important to think about the context of how we evolved because Loop is the next progressive step in, in our evolution. So we first began by saying, how do we move from linear take make waste systems to more circular ones? And the first step was how do we figure out how to, uh, to collect and recycle anything that is not recyclable? Like that's not necessarily fully circular, but it starts bending the, the linear system into a, into a slightly more circular one. And what we realize there is that what makes something recyclable is whether a local garbage company can make money recycling that object. And what makes something not recyclable is the inverse, that it would cost more to collect and process than the results are worth. And the challenge is, is it's getting worse. You know, oil prices are low relative to where they were five years ago. Um, and markets are more difficult to access. Many countries stopping the importation of waste, which they did for very good reason, but it also still does hurt recyclers who used to export, you know, around 40, 50% of their waste to these markets who paid for it. And then the third 
is, and this is the most important, is that the quality of our waste, vis-a-vis -vis how profitable it is for recyclers to recycle, is diminishing because as products become lighter and cheaper, there is objectively less value to recover. And that's this big challenge as, uh, of, uh, of disposability. What disposability brings about is phenomenal convenience and affordability, which are major virtues, right? These are things that are very important you know, to access things cheaply and in a convenient way. Those are probably the two biggest drivers of how we use our products. But to make things cheap and convenient, we typically take value out of it, which makes it fundamentally less exciting for recyclers to bother even trying to recycle because there's just less value. Yeah. So that was the first sort of part. From there, we said, once we got that going, well, now let's work on companies integrating waste into their products. So they're not just making sure their product is recycled, but that there are also a demand for recycled materials because you need both. And that's sort of what became the TerraCycle business and grew. And then we had, you know, maybe four years ago, a big think and asked ourselves, is that enough? And we realized recycling is an imperfect solution to waste. Um, it's a Band-Aid. Uh, 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 and it's an imperfect solution because you're still managing waste. It's perhaps the best way to manage waste, but it's not a, you're not solving the concept of waste, right? You're not eliminating the idea of waste. You're just managing the problem. And so we then took a think on, well, how do we get a step deeper and solve for the idea of waste, right? And so there we landed on the root cause of waste, we believe, is this concept of single use or disposability. Those are somewhat synonymous. Those came about in the 1950s. Before then, you know, we cobbled our shoes, we mended our clothes, we bought milk from the milkman and all the derivatives thereof. And as we looked at reuse, um, we then evaluated, you know, what is going on in reuse, right? And what's happening? And we looked at, there's many ways that, uh, uh, that reuse models can exist today. You can have refill stations at stores. You can buy concentrate and fill at home, you know, these models. But then when we looked at what is the biggest scaled reuse system in the world today, we realized that it's pre-fill, like products that are already full, ready to purchase. Those are the biggest scaled system. It's Canadian beer. It's uh, German beverages. It's even here in the U.S. propane tanks and beer kegs. And this then led to the what's the macro challenge in the reuse economy is that every reuse apparatus, whether it's a refill station or concentrate or pre-fills, are what you would call mono supply chains. In other words, you got to take the beer keg back to the beer store. You got to take the propane tank back to the propane tank store. You got to remember to go to that refill station for that product and it's not scalable. Like one of the nice things about disposability is your garbage can doesn't care where you bought the object. Your recycling bin only cares if that bottle is recyclable. It doesn't care what was in it or where you bought it. And that's what we felt reuse needs, a platform for reuse that effectively enables a simple idea buy anywhere, return anywhere for as many types of products humanly conceivable. And that really is what Loop is trying to achieve, is to, is to be that platform where any brand can participate, create a reusable version of their product from orange juice to laundry detergent, and any retailer can, uh, can make that available you know, to their consumer, and the consumer can simply you know, buy at a McDonald's and return to a Tesco. Yeah, that's a, re that's a really interesting way to look at it, to kind of look at look at these um, pre-filled systems and how convenient they are, but their limitations around the single supply chain, as you say. Uh, yes. And that's not something I'd, I'd kind of thought about, the, the kind of nuances between just taking any old empty container and then having to fill it versus just, you know, dumping the empty container and, and you know, grabbing a fresh one 
um, pre-filled, as you say, from the from the shelf. And so, um, when I read, first read about the, the US launch of Loop, I noticed the solution involved home delivery of the products yes. um, in the Loop containers uh, via um, a parcel courier. Um, and then, once you'd finished, um, you presumably use an app to say, um, you know, this needs refilling, um, and then you'd schedule a delivery. But in the UK, the model is refill stations in Tesco stores, and I think in France it's at Carrefour stores. Is that right? So it's a slightly different model. So is this an evolution of the offer based on um, how customers have interacted with it so far, or is it about different models for different demographics or cultural patterns? It's a very good question, and I would say, to answer it backward, um, Loop is now live in uh, Japan, France, UK, US, and Canada and soon launching in Australia. And we've seen no difference in cultural uh, approaches, right? So it's actually pretty synonymous how consumers behave in all these markets and what drives them. Now, in all countries, uh, including the UK and France, we started as an online learning model. So the way we launched in the US is exactly how we launched in France and the UK, where the retailers and the brands wanted proof, right? That there is consumer appetite before um, they would invest into making this physically in-store and put all that commitment against it. So we launched loopstore.com in the U.S. and then U.K., France, Canada, uh, Japan. And the learnings were very similar. They were all very positive. It basically showed consumers care and they're willing to do it. And so what has happened then in all markets is that the retailers like Tesco in the U.K., Carrefour in France and others have now gone in-store. And as they have done that, we've been able to close down these online learning platforms. And uh, we've already done that in France, and all of them will be closed down by the end of this year as they make way for uh, consumers uh, uh, being able to access uh, the Loop system physically in store. Now, just one clarification, there are no refill stations. Um, if you go into a Tesco, you're going to see a shelf of about 100 products from tomato ketchup by Heinz to Persil by Unilever, you, know, you name it, even private label products in pre-filled containers. You buy those, you pay a deposit, you, and then when you're done, you can uh, deposit the empty, dirty containers back into a loop in and get your deposits back. And then from there, we clean and it gets refilled and sold to someone else. Um, and that's really the model that is scaling now all over the world. Um, now, some of these retailers may choose to also make it available online, and some have. Uh, but it seems like the appetite from retailers is really to scale the in-store uh, uh, version only because that is still the majority of how people shop for their groceries as an in-store environment. Yeah, I guess there's also the potential attraction of having the loop stations in the loop store in within the store, yes. um, increasing the footfall within the store. Because um, as you probably know, in the in the UK, I don't I don't know how it works in other countries, but in the UK, um, we've ended up with a online supermarket delivery model that loses money for the for the retailers because they don't they don't yes. charge for it um so um so yeah they kind of need to bring p people back into the stores um so yeah that's 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 interesting and it and you're right it is we do need to think about it differently because there are these refill stations where you take in your own packaging and you refill bulk pasta um rice whatever um, and um, and then other ones with the um, uh, e-cover and other and you know sort of household products where you take in any you know that that packaging or any similar packaging as long as it's the right size and refill your laundry liquid and things and and that's a different model, isn't it? 
Well, and just to build on that, if I may, like what's quite exciting about the two you uh, like Ecover, as, 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 as you've described, uh, is a great brand example where they're doing all three modalities of reuse. In some retailers, you can see Ecover refill stations, and they've been a pioneer at this. In, uh, I think they also do where you can buy concentrate or some form of bulk and fill it at home. And then they're also doing loop, which you would call prefill. Now, as a platform, our goal is that you can, with Loop, interact in all three of those and float through them without any inconvenience. So perhaps you go to, um, let's say, uh, one of the retailers that's doing Ecover refill stations and uh, buy, a, buy a bottle there, fill it at the refill station. Maybe then you go home and then you empty it out there, clean it and fill it up with some concentrate. And then maybe after you've done that a few times and maybe it's a little gunky and, you know, and, and you're not quite happy with the bottle, you can go to Tesco and drop it in the loop bin, get your deposit back. And maybe when you're there, you buy one already filled off the set. And you can then, you see this idea of like, we have to, see, here's the problem, I think. Disposability is vilified, rightly so, for all the environmental um, challenges, you know, that we've, you know, that you mentioned earlier in our discussion. And rightly so. But we cannot just rest that we have to move away from disposability because there's all these problems. It's really important to empathize and honor the virtues of disposability, which is this phenomenal convenience and affordability. Mm. And disposability has won. Whether we like it or not, it has won and it beat frugality and, you know, and all the things that are not per se as convenient or affordable. So for reuse to have a chance, we can't just vilify disposability and ask you to do reuse on those virtues alone. We need to say we can match convenience. And we can make it as easy as throwing something away. So, for example, at Loop, our mantra is we want reuse to feel disposable. It's so important because that is a key virtue, right? Not to be destructive like disposability, but to feel like disposability. So as an example, in Tesco, you can buy a Loop return bag. This is like a reusable bag that you can put in your rubbish bin. And it looks like a, like a, like a rubbish bag. You throw all your Loop items in there, whether it's your McDonald's coffee cup or your whatever, your tomato ketchup. And then when that bag is full of a bunch of dirty empties, like a rubbish bag, you can take the whole bag, chuck it into the return point uh, for Loop at Tesco, and you're done. And you get all, you know, we open the bag, we count everything inside, we return your deposits. But you see, it feels like a waste experience. And that, I think, is really important because the more we make the consumer work relative to disposability, the fewer people we're talking to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about um you know making it pretty much as easy uh, and the way the way you describe in the sort of long-term example of the you know the bag there um yeah. that pretty much is as easy all you've got to do is remember to take the bag with you when you go to the supermarket right. and yet it helps the 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 person feel that they're doing the right thing by making a tiny a tiny change to their habits it's not a it's not a big deal um, so it's a much easier and an easier sell to anybody in the family who's who's less enthusiastic mm-hmm. about recycling than the kind of um, you know the the main driver of changing changing the model. Um, and has anything else surprised you about um, customer behaviour and the, and the yes, way people absolutely. are interacting with this? Absolutely. So first, just to re-emphasize the earlier question, is that there isn't differences between the British or Japanese or Canadian consumer. It's actually surprising. I thought there would be, and it's like so the same. Um, another interesting piece is that the person, like the value consumer, someone who really cares about the price of their content, um, will care in reuse about the price of the ketchup per ounce or the shampoo per ounce. But you know what they don't care about is the price of the deposit. 
very interesting that there is very little sensitivity there. And so that means that you can invent very, you know, fantastic packages that do amazing things and may have new features and benefits to them versus just the, 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 the benefit of, of it being more sustainable. So that's actually quite exciting. And there isn't deposit anxiety in on a per bottle basis or in the aggregate. That's a really powerful one. Now, what's also interesting is why do people purchase? And I think this is another important lesson to any sustainability practitioner, whether you're trying you know, to implement a sustainability project or your whole life is dedicated to like, you know, pushing sustainability, is the why. Now, I thought people would buy it because sustainability, reusability, it's why we created the platform. But it's only one of three reasons that they buy, and the other two are equally important. The second reason, oh, and by the way, the sustainability message is more important to women than men, measurably more important. Um, now, the second reason people buy is because the packaging is more beautiful, more aesthetic, more luxurious. Those are, that's a selfish benefit, but nevertheless, that is a major reason to move to reuse because now your laundry detergent is in beautiful stainless steel and not disposable plastic. And that it has aesthetic, sort of higher quality material, better touch, you know, these things. But those are personal benefits, nothing to do with the environment. And the third, more indexing and in food and beverage is people perceive that reusable packaging because it's you know, usually glass and alloys and less so plastic, it's healthier for them. And isn't that interesting that the second two reasons people buy are entirely personal? And it's, you know, it shouldn't have surprised us because it's the same thing that happens with organic food, right? Why was the organic food movement created? I would presume to help the birds and the bees and the butterflies, right? It mm -hmm. was for that reason. But why do people buy organic food? It's entirely for human health, which is the most internal selfish reason to purchase, you know? And it's the number one and almost only reason people buy organic food is that they perceive that, uh, and I think they're right, that it's healthier for them. And it's not even why the movement was created. So the lesson here is let's accept that that's how people think and let's play into that, right? Uh, which will then allow us to bring about more uh, innovation and sustainability than hope that people are actually better actors than they are. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. So j just to clarify that the number one reason is because it's more sustainable. Um, and then two is beauty and, and three is the health of the packaging. And I think but all, that, all that... equal, all equal. Oh, OK. Right? It's not that sustainability is number one. It's that okay. those are the three major reasons. OK. And they all are about equal weight. OK. Yeah, that's really interesting, particularly I'm particularly interested in the um, perception of the packaging being healthier. And I think yes. that's translating into um other spheres um mm -hmm. the last podcast i think um that i published was um by the author of a book about healthy fashion um which was looking about how the, looking at what fibers we're putting in contact with our skin uh and why some some fibers would be much healthier for others and then kind of looking at other other aspects of what that means for the for the planet and for the farmers who are growing those um yes both in terms of physical health, but also the health of their businesses and resilience yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, that's um, uh, some really nice exploratory themes emerging yeah. there. Um, so I think we've we've um, talked about how the, the loop various models work and how they all interface together. Um, and you talked about the deposits and the deposit cost not being a barrier. Um, but when loop first launched here, um, and it was featured on BBC. I think it might have been the presenters kind of kept coming back to the 
the value of the deposit and, and sure. that seemed really expensive. So if if you are coming across those kind of objections, how are you countering those? How are you getting people to see it differently if they think it's, you know, this is so much, this is so expensive compared to the value of the product well, inside? It's a very good question. And in fact, we have deposits where, or like, for example, uh, Clorox wipes in the US, the deposit is $10 and the wipes are only $4. So there's even situations where the deposit is multiple times the content. Now, the first thing I would say is the data speaks for itself. Consumers have voted and have said that they are not sensitive to deposits. And I believe they're not sensitive for two reasons. One is they get the money back in full. Mm. Like, let's just be, it's not a payment. It is literally a deposit, right? You get the money back in full. But the other is that it's a really good deal. So let me give you an example. The McDonald's coffee cup uh, 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 that McDonald's is using in the UK for Loop is a one uh, British pound deposit. Right. It's a, uh, you know, one one, let's say dollar equivalent. Right. Uh, a deposit. But if you bought this cup empty, say on Amazon, the identical cup, it would be ten dollars. So what a deal. Right. If you decide to keep it now, mind you, 50 percent are coming back. And some people I think like, I'm keeping the one I have because it's now my coffee cup on my desk. Um, but I just saved 90 percent if I bought it empty. We were making a joke with the team at BrewDog who, uh, who does beer in the uh, Tesco uh, launch. And they have this beautiful growler with like a, a uh, you know, this like cap that you can put on and off very, very easily. If you bought that growler empty, like no beer inside, just empty, it would be more expensive than the growler full of beer purchased on the shelf of Tesco. And that's the entire point is that when people are selling empty containers, whether an empty growler or an empty, uh, you know, coffee cup, there are different profit margin requirements for the retailer. And, the, and as such, like a water bottle, you know, empty could be $20. But when the deposit is set and McDonald's is selling you coffee or BrewDog is selling you beer, they just make sure the deposit is a little more than the cost of purchasing the package. And so their margin requirements are significantly more modest. Mm. And so you can get a phenomenal deal and you don't want it when you're done. Give it back and you get your money back. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, how the price dynamics work? And um, yeah, I think that there's probably some question marks around the profit margins for, um, you know, what what people are considering as, um, you know, eco choices or green choices in inverted commas that, um, you know, perhaps there's still a perception that people will pay vast amounts for a reusable, a reusable cup, um, you know, just because it's now becoming the thing to do. Um, and so is in terms of the evolution so far of, of the loop system and the, the three methods, um, do you see it fitting into, um, an option where people could bring their own containers or will you stick to just having the loop branded containers that you've worked with the, um, the food companies on? So as I mentioned earlier, right, there are three what we would call modes or mm. modalities through which one can experience reuse. And those bucket into refill stations where you bring your own container. Concentrate where you have your own container at home or, or tablets. I'm sure you've seen this with window cleaner. You know, you get a tablet, you dilute it at home or soaps. You can do that. And then prefill where the container is already filled, ready to go. Now, Loop wants to make sure that the first two med- modalities can interact with anything in prefill. Mm-hmm. But we are laser focused on prefill as the approach. And we are because of two reasons. It has the widest breadth of opportunity. 
on it. So many things cannot be concentrated. Uh, uh, like how would you concentrate a frozen pizza mm. or concentrate, um, you know, latex paint, right? There's many things that just simply cannot be concentrated. There's many things that are not appropriate to, be, uh, to go through, could not or would not be appropriate to be dispensed through a refill station, right? Alcohol, probably inappropriate to dispense through a refill station or anything that like interacts with oxygen because in the refill station, you're going to have a moment of oxygen, right? Mm. And many things need to have the oxygen prevention. There's many other examples where refill stations wouldn't be appropriate. So for width and breadth, we uh, have gone to uh, and really focused on on uh, on what you would call prefill, because you know anything from insect repellent all the way to you name it, motor oil can go into uh, um, prefill. That's one reason. The second reason is that it's the most convenient for all the actors, which are the brands, the retailers, and the consumers. It is the most like disposable consumption. You buy it, you throw it away. You're mm -hmm. just throwing it away, not into a rubbish bin or a recycling bin, but a reuse bin. And so those are the reasons that we've focused where we have. And so we're not putting any resources into developing uh, refill stations. So there's many wonderful companies that are. So if you know organizations want to take advantage of that, there's huge ecosystems of companies that do that very well. We just want to make sure that if you buy in loop, you can still go to a refill station or vice versa so that there is this flow and compatibility. Mm. So maybe there's just certain products that will lend themselves to, to being um, suitable for refill. Um, but, uh, you know, um, things like laundry liquid, um, you know, whilst I've been refilling for years, I never look forward to going to do it because I know I'm always going to end up with, you know, even though I've cleaned the bottles myself, there's always a spillage somewhere in the in the yeah. system. And then you're kind of, um, you know, spending five minutes in, in the farm shop toilets trying to get the laundry liquid off your hands. Great stuff. So, um, and can we talk a little bit about how the business, how the, you know, the, the loop system creates more value for the brands and the retailers themselves? We talked uh, anonymous to the disposable experience. It just acts reusable. And then there's the extra carrot, which is by moving the package from being a cost of goods sold, in other words, you buy the package in full when you buy the content, to an asset, you can greatly invest into not just more beautiful materials, but more function, more capability, you know, more things that otherwise just wouldn't be possible in a, uh, in, in a disposable uh, pack. Like, the McDonald's coffee cup, the lid is very strongly put on. So if you flip it upside down, the lid won't pop off. In a paper cup, it would very much pop off with the weight of the coffee pushing it down. It's also insulated. So it keeps the, your coffee colder if it's, a, you know, it's an iced coffee or warmer if it's a hot beverage. Those are all meaningful upgrades that couldn't exist in a disposable pack because a disposable pack would become prohibitively expensive. And that's also a really exciting carrot is the future opportunity of innovation. Um, which think about it if you're a packaging designer today. Since the 1950s, every day your boss comes in and tells you to make a cool package cheaper. That cheaper part is critical. It's always now make it cheaper than yesterday. Yeah, make it and, lighter weight or... Yeah, or, yeah and yeah. at some point, I mean, you know, there's only so much you can do with no budget. And so the goal is how do we think about now reversing it and going in the opposite direction since we've gone to the extreme on how light and thin and you know uh, can a package become yeah it's fascinating so a whole new a whole new um exciting uh set of career options for for budding designers that packaging totally. might have seemed really unattractive as a you know who wants to go into something that's um 
contributing to the to the problem uh, and now you can kind of do the same thing but but contribute to the solution absolutely brilliant so um tom what's next on the horizon for TerraCycle and loop what can we look forward absolutely. to absolutely so i mean there's the usual answer here which is you know uh just more right uh more markets more scale i think TerraCycle is now really in its growth stage uh so we're looking forward to how do we significantly increase the impact how much more can we collect and recycle and not just in volume but in more capabilities you know uh for example, in the US, just last month, we launched with L'Oreal uh, Salon Cycle, which is a major focus on bringing recycling to salons from human hair to, you know, to coloration products and so on. So we're doing a lot of, we're launching our own curbside service uh, next year as well to bring recycling to what you would call recycling deserts, communities that don't have recycling. Um, so we're doing a lot of extra capabilities. In Loop, it's all about moving you know, we move from online pilot to in-store pilot. Now the real focus is moving out of in-store pilot into in-store scale. That's the next sort of chasm to jump. And sustainability projects always have a challenge of moving out of pilot into scale. And that's the exact thing we're in the middle of right now. Um, but we're also looking to develop new ways to eliminate and elevate the idea of waste. So one of our new divisions is TerraCycle Diagnostics, which goes live next year with some really exciting partnerships. And Diagnostics came out of loop because it has the thesis that certain waste streams carry diagnosable samples. Your air condition filter is used to filter out all the mold and mildew and everything in your air, but have you ever analyzed it when you've replaced your AC filter to see what's floating in your air? I imagine almost no one has, but would you? And now we can. Um, we're even launching next year diaper diagnostics where you can send in one soil diaper from your child and we'll analyze the microbiome on the fecal sample and tell you about potential allergies or certain traits uh you know does your child have a good uh microbiome which is really critical in early development um and maybe compromised if your child is uh, uh uh born through a cesarean or through um or is bottle fed versus you know vaginally born or milk fed or uh, you know breast milk fed and these are really interesting things on how to elevate the concept of waste right no one ever thought your you know an air conditioned filter can do more than just filter the air but maybe it can tell you about your air and many other not all waste streams carry this opportunity but there's many that do and so that's a new exciting division that we're launching in the middle of next year yeah fascinating yeah and the microbiome is critically important i think um i read somewhere that it's not just in babies in all of us um yes. that the um it's your your biome is responsible for about 70 percent of your immune system um so making sure it's it's healthy um, and I guess understanding, um, you know, what's missing out of all the good bacteria yes. could be could be yeah. absolutely invaluable. Yeah, a big lesson there that I've learned in doing research on this is it's good to roll in dirt sometimes, you know, <laughs> and especially in a world where we are so hygiene concerned, of course, accentuated by the pandemic. Um, it's good to get some dirt below the fingernails. Yeah, know? yeah. And uh, that is like a natural inoculum. Mm. Yeah. What about vacuum cleaner filters? You know, how many microplastics are in your vacuum in your, you know, household, sure. household yes. uh, floor sweepings yes. and things. So um, over the, you know, 20, 20 years now running a, a circular economy business, um, which is, you know, is brilliant. So um, reflecting on those two decades, what's the thing that you've most struggled with and, and what surprised you most in the, in the process of building TerraCycle and Loop? You know, you know, we began the discussion, as I said, what sort of turned me off about the way business is taught is that it's taught that it serves one God, which is profit to shareholders. And after 20 years of doing this, I have to say it still is the God that is served ostensibly. 
You know, many times I hear from companies, we're only really going to do anything if there's consumer concern, right? So we'll do it in the UK because maybe their consumer concern is high, but we're not going to do it in the US because consumer concern isn't that high. Um, so in other words, it's like sustainability is important if it drives sales, if it drives loyalty, if it drives the God of profit to shareholders. And now that is a disappointing realization that is still true to this day, but it's also good to know how the chess pieces move on the chessboard. And so the lesson to me is to say, okay, it sucks, but that is how people are. So let's play into that. Let's figure out how we can you know, uh, uh, use sustainability to drive those functions. Um, now, I hope that time will change this as young people today who are very passionate uh, about the environment, you know, uh, move out of school and into leadership positions and then, you know, run these organizations. I am seeing it shift. You can see in the past three years it's shifting, but it's still fundamentally rooted in sustainability, you know, will be executed if it, if it serves, you know, basic company KPIs like growth, profit, market share, those things. And it's sad because it ought not to, but, it, but, it, but that's still what it is today. And it's important that folks accept that um, and then work within it if they want to really affect change today. And hopefully over time, culturally, you know, that, will, that will perhaps uh, shift. And that leads to then a great realization to me is that business cannot solve the environmental concerns we're in. C citizens can. Mm. And citizens can by voting with what they purchase as as seriously as they take the political vote. You know, we get hung up on the political vote. What, once every four years, we get to choose from a few leaders. When we vote with money multiple times a day for the future we want. And that is, that is gonna be, I think the great question is, can we, through democratic commerce, you know, uh, and I say it this way, not buy our way into sustainability, but not buy our way into sustainability. Because the best vote is the vote of not purchasing. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely agree with with all of that. And um, something I did for the um, United Nations Circular Economy course recently um, was all about how, you know, we have got that power, not just of voting with your wallet in terms of what you buy and what you decide not to buy. Um, but if you can put a bit more effort into telling the company why you've not bought that or why you like what they've just done yes. to be more sustainable then that helps kind of um, amplify the message. And I think the only way we're going to make a difference fast enough is if we as citizens are creating the market conditions that nudge the companies further and faster along the journey and nudge the politicians into realising that these decisions of levelling the playing field, these decisions of realising that you know we're in a closed system, we can't keep on over-exploiting resources and we can't keep on destroying nature... Um, you know, these are vote losers, the way that they're, you know, pushing the decisions further and further up the road for the next government that also doesn't do anything. Um, and we need to kind of, um, you know, really make it a pressing need for them to be seen to be doing the right thing and making the right policies and the right innovations around um, reusability and durability and, and repairability and all that kind of thing. Um, and um, yeah, I think it, I think it's really important. So so I'm glad that's something that that you're um, helping to um, helping people to think about just how much we can do without realizing it. Um, so brilliant. And if you were to give one um, top tip for somebody looking to take their business more circular or start something circular, what would that be, Tom? Um, 
That's a very good question. Uh, look, I think the very first thing I would look at, especially if I'm a company that's making things, is how do I ensure that everything I make has a thoughtful end of life? Not a theoretical end of life, but a practical end of life that is not a linear output. Simple example, make my thing recyclable or make it reusable or whatever it may be, repurposeful, something that there is a next step. And think about that in your design process. Yeah, that's, yeah I think that's, that's really useful and people often don't think about that. They think about the point of sale and the yeah. value that they're offering then, um, but not further on. And thinking about the reusable packaging example, companies have been focused on convenience at the point of sale but have forgotten about the inconvenience of all the recycling and, you know, which which recycling bucket does this go into? Or, oh, look, it doesn't go anywhere. And now that's making me feel bad as a citizen because I now I now know I'm contributing to landfill. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, think- you know what it's like? It's taking into account the hangover, not just the uh, not just the buzz. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good analogy. So, Tom, which of your um, your values, whether from a personal perspective or the, the TerraCycle values, do you think helps move us towards a better world, one that's more sustainable and fairer? Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the greatest thing for me is this idea of like pragmatically accept, you know, the way people act and then empathize with their point of view and help them see that, they can accomplish their goals, whether you agree with them or not, in a way that's more sustainable versus attacking and saying, you know, um, shame on you for X and be, be better. That's a much harder uh, strategy to, uh, to win with. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. And who would you recommend as a future guest for the Circular Economy podcast? I'd recommend Paul Hawken, who's actually one of my original inspirations. He wrote Natural Capitalism a few decades ago and just a wonderful thought leader in this space, a, a, you know, true pioneer. Thank you. He was one of my the, the earliest books that I was um, mm. reading when I was trying to get my head around all of this back in 2010. And um, yeah. yeah, thank you. That's a great recommendation. And Tom, how can people find out more and, and get in touch and look at what's happening with Loop and TerraCycle? Absolutely. So on TerraCycle Recycling, simply check out TerraCycle.com on Loop. Uh, ExploreLoop.com gives you our global uh, platform that you can see and check out. And then you can also find us on LinkedIn and feel free to get in touch with us. Great. Thank you. And we'll put all those links in the show notes at circuareconomypodcast.com. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with the next phase of scaling up loop and creating a circular economy for packaging. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to chat with you. That was an amazing conversation with so many thoughtful insights and learnings from Tom. At the start, Tom talked about the essentials of both profit and purpose, with profit being an indicator of a healthy business. I liked how Tom described the progressive steps in TerraCycle's evolution, starting with how to collect and recycle things that weren't recyclable, then moving to help companies integrate waste, in other words, recycled materials, into their products. And the next step with Loop is how to tackle one of the root causes of waste, single-use and disposable items. It seems that TerraCycle and Loop have evolved by being clear, forensically clear, on the most convenient solution for the customer and for the brands and the retailers. That convenience has to match or improve on the convenience of the current disposable system. As Tom said, reuse needs to feel disposable. 
and for the last few decades, disposability has won out over frugality and greener options that need more effort. And they chose pre-fill rather than refill because it provided the widest breadth of opportunity and because pre-fill systems have been around successfully for centuries. Again, TerraCycle looked at those systems, unpicking what worked and why they're not already applied to many more products. They realised that the mono supply chain, as Tom called it, prevented scaling up and out to more product types. The TerraCycle team thinks carefully about how to scale up, what brands and retailers need to see before they can build the confidence to move forward and create the business case for investment. So they start with the online learning platform to show that consumers want this. Then follow with the in-store pilots, finally expanding the in-store offer across the the store portfolio. We talked about the cost of deposits for the containers. Tom was clear that cost isn't a barrier, even where the deposit might be $10 for one container. And yet I'm still seeing comments on LinkedIn criticising the cost of the deposits and complaining that this means it's an option for the middle classes, but excludes those on lower incomes who don't have any spare cash to invest in a deposit. And here I'm reminded of Brian Bauer of Algramo in episode 42 explaining how Algramo's reusable packaging helps solve the poverty tax you pay if you have to shop in convenience stores. I've put the link for that episode in the show notes. I loved what Tom said about the future of packaging design and how Loop's pre-fill model is changing the rules, taking the golden rule for good packaging design over the last few decades, how do we make it cheaper, and turning that upside down. Now, with the pre-fill model, designers can think about how to make this more functional, more durable, even more beautiful. They can design packaging to add value for us, the user, as well as for the brand, the retailer, and even for the eventual recycler. We talked about healthy packaging, people's preferences for glass, steel, and aluminium, instead of plastic. And I mentioned the book on healthy fashion by Elisa Couture, who I spoke to in episode 66. Again, you'll find the link in these show notes. And finally, I loved what Tom said about voting with our purchasers. We can vote multiple times every day for the future we want by making better choices about what we buy and what we don't buy. The best vote is the vote of not purchasing. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Tom Zaki, the founder of TerraCycle and Loop. You can find out more and follow Tom, TerraCycle and Loop on social media and on their websites. I've included the links in the show notes. Thanks to Lauren Taylor and Laura Kukuron for making this episode possible. As usual, you can check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulateconomypodcast.com. If you want to find episodes on a particular circular economy strategy or for a market sector or specific countries, check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. 
buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word, talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. The book takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe. And we'll see you next time.